to discuss economic inequality with Mayor de Blasio, we have our own Goldman School of Public Policy, UC Berkeley, and really the nation's treasure, Robert Reich. Thank you so much, Henry. I, I want to I thank uh, Henry Brady and the Goldman School and the staff of the Goldman School. I also want to thank uh, Jake Kornbluth and the Economic Inequality Media Project because uh, we are trying to get the word out about what's happening in this country economically, what's happening to our, to our democracy. It's my great, great pleasure to introduce to you Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City. Body inequality. Does that make me the one percent? I think you're at, you're in the top one tenth of one percent, Mr. Mayor. I, thank you for joining us. Tell us about uh, your project. You uh, a day and a half ago, you actually launched a project on inequality, a national conversation on inequality. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. What we've put together in these last weeks, we call the Progressive Agenda. And I urge everyone to go to progressiveagenda.us. I don't think there's a lot of parallels in our history for something of this magnitude. Uh, finding that there is no coherent federal response. I often parallel the dynamic of the New Deal. As hard as all of us are working at the local level to address income inequality, we cannot do it effectively without changes in national policy. We need a $15 minimum wage everywhere if we're really going to change this country. We need progressive taxation we, in, the, in the platform. In the platform, we say some of the most obvious, some of those items I think should be most universal. The Buffett rule, millionaires and billionaires should not pay a lower percentage of taxes than the secretaries and clerks that work in their offices. Uh, closing the carried interest loophole. Hedge fund managers literally should not pay less in taxes than the the woman who cleans their summer home or the man who flies their private jet, right? It's just simple, straightforward ideas and profoundly important ideas where there's not yet the kind of national consensus we need. So what I hoped to do and what I'm finding uh, really great uh, collegiality on, and, and Bob, thank you for being one of the people who signed on early on and is helping us to build this movement, is there's a hunger out there for a clear set of ideas that actually change the country and progressives all over the country are gathering to show our combined strength to make a difference. If we do this well enough, if we do this strongly and consistently enough, we actually can change those national policies, and that's what's animating my work. Uh, Mr. Mayor, let me ask you, though, why should this just be a progressive agenda? Why shouldn't this be an agenda of the entire poor, the working class, the middle class, uh, conservatives, people who call themselves Republicans? They have as much interest in uh, taking back the economy, making the economy working for everybody, uh, and not just the few at the top, as progressives do, right? And I, I love the word progressive because it harkens back to something that worked powerfully in this nation's history and politics, the progressive movement a hundred years ago and before was the gateway to the New Deal, uh, created the thinking of how a, a government can actually serve people 
in a meaningful and tangible way, and also in a way that suggested the kind of reforms that government at that time needed profoundly. I think we need a version of that again today. So why we call it the progressive agenda is it harkens back to a consistency in American history about when we got it right. But it's not meant to be anything less than an ecumenical statement of things that people could agree with uh, across the board. I was on Morning Joe uh, a week or so ago. And Joe Scarborough, who's known to remind the viewers of his uh, time as a Republican congressman, uh, he said on the Buffett rule, you know, I think something like that is, is uh, the kind of idea that Americans across the board could agree on. And, and I think a lot of these, I think pre-K is another great example. We are blessed in New York City. We've been working very hard the last few years. This is the number one issue I ran on, full day, high quality pre-K for every child in New York City. Well, if you look around the country, that idea is gathering strength in lots of places. But if you say, well, tell me where else is doing a great job on pre-K, the first words out of my mouth would be the state of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And so it's not red or blue that we need uh, pre-K for all our kids. It's not red or blue that we should have fair taxation. Certainly not red or blue that we need to raise the minimum wage. In, in 2014, four states passed minimum wage increases by referenda. They were all red states. So something bigger is going on here uh, that I think indicates people are, are more and more demanding some solutions. They're demanding it from the grassroots. I, we've talked about the Fight for 15 movement, which is extraordinary. A couple weeks ago, you know, maybe it wasn't on every front page of every newspaper or didn't lead every TV news broadcast, but in 200 cities around the country, simultaneously, there were demonstrations for the $15 minimum wage. That's not a minor development. That suggests the grassroots speaking powerfully. Uh, so I think it's a moment to achieve some of these changes, and it's certainly a moment where a, a lot of folks who uh, may not agree on some other social issues, for example, can get together on the economic issues. The political question is how do we, that is the larger we, Democrats, Republicans, progressives, others, who want an agenda that is actually for working people and not an economy that's working just for the people at the top. How do we come together when, number one, you've got a kind of divide and conquer strategy in the Republican Party, that is, uh, uh, you know, blame the immigrants, blame the poor, uh, blame the, the African Americans, blame everybody else. Uh, and among Democrats, you've got uh, people who are accepting a lot of money from Wall Street and big business, how do you actually break through both? Let's start with money. How do you break through the big money? Well, how do you get big money out of politics? First of all, I think we, we do need a constitutional amendment to reverse the Citizens United decision. I mean, we, that's where we have to go fundamentally. And, and I want to say very quickly, I want to say this is for those who might say, well, that sounds too idealistic. Look at the polling in the months after the Citizens United decision how consistently Democrat, Republican, Independent, the American people rejected that decision because they could quickly ascertain that it would lead to even more concentration of power among those who were most wealthy. Uh, so I actually think we can build a consensus among the people, not the political insiders and uh, the traditional structures, but among the people that we have to get money out of the political process. I think the time is ripe for that. I think a nation where income inequality is at the greatest point it's been since before the Great Depression and getting worse, uh, and where uh, the middle class is now in a profoundly tenuous situation, that is a nation ripe for fundamental political change. We can't be the ones who, those of us who want change, can't be the ones with blinders on that somehow think 
The current dynamic is unmovable. It's profoundly movable. And I think part of it is to uh, bluntly not allow the mistakes of 2014, and I'll speak in this instance from a partisan perspective as a Democrat in 2014, and I've written about this, many, many Democratic candidates around the country for Senate, Governor, House, ran away from the traditional values of their party. They didn't want to talk about income inequality. They didn't want to talk about poverty. They didn't want to talk about taxing the wealthy. They didn't even want to talk about their own president and his achievement with the Affordable Care Act. And lo and behold, a lot of voters around the country looked at that and didn't see anything recognizable in the way of a set of solutions or values. They didn't want to talk about these things, and yet you said, and I agree, most Americans care about these things. The four states that actually did raise the minimum wage are red states. They did not send uh, Democrats to Washington. Why is it Democrats are so reluctant to talk in these terms? So I think money is part of it. You mean the money they're, they're drinking at the same trough as the What's Republican. one way of saying it? Uh, <laughs> known for his diplomatic uh, statements. Uh, I, but I'm going to go farther than just the narrow construct. You know, if you get money from wealthy donors, you don't want to offend or, or propose policies they don't like. That's one piece of the equation. I think the, the professional political class is another part of the equation because I think what we have developed in this country is a, a consultant class and an insider class that often is very unimaginative and not necessarily connected to the grassroots. In my city, 46% of the people are at or near the poverty level. That is based on a statistic from the Bloomberg administration. If that is the reality in our country, uh, it would be illogical not to address it. And what I find interesting is that so many people in sort of the insider political world have decided it is a greater danger to offend the wealthy or the donors than to say the things that would actually move the people and the voters. Part of what I hope our discussion is, will do, and the, certainly our progressive agenda will do, will remind candidates and leaders in office right now, if you want people to feel something, give them a vision that's sharp and clear, and yes, has an element of risk to it, there's no question. So you are, let's just uh, hypo let's hypothesize for a second. Uh, you are a candidate uh, for president in 2016. No, I'm not. No, you're not. <laughs> I'm, 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 using, I'm using a hypothetical. No. Uh, all right. Let, uh, <laughs> let's say I'm a you're candidate. You're a president. Okay. Uh, this is a hypothetical. You heard it here. Okay, we have news no, made no. already. <laughs> No, no, this is, I, I want to use this as a hypothetical. So here is the question I have for you. You are advising me, or let's say Hillary Clinton is sitting here. What specifically? I mean, to say, yes, you have to have a vision that's going to move people, you've got to talk about inequality, but specifically, what do you want that candidate to say in order to move people? Something that the political consultants are not... Okay, so go look at, uh, again, I'll hype for a moment, progressiveagenda.us, 13-point agenda. Uh, no point is more than a sentence long or two sentences long. It's, you know, very compressed and clear. I think if you, present, if you can present a tangible, clear picture of the way we're going to change people's lives, let me tell you about pre-K. Pre-K is so fascinating because parents get instantly that you're now saying we're going to help your child 
change fundamentally their economic trajectory, not just their educational trajectory, their economic trajectory, because we get them into full day high quality pre-K, it will change their entire future. It's the time that you can have a transcendent impact on their economic and educational future. And I think people do want to hear, they know the game has been rigged, they want to hear that something's going to start to rewrite the rules. So when you say we're going to, we're going to implement the Buffett rule, we're going to close the carried interest loophole, uh, you start to change the dynamics in favor of the people again. Those things to me would be a catalytic in terms of public interest and involvement. Yeah, well, powerful policies, and the policies that you're talking about are powerful, specific policies. And also, uh, Jake Cornbluth uh, and I and Move On have been working on a, something very, very similar, series of videos, uh, 10 videos, about 10 ideas, many of them overlapping with what you're talking about. So there is a way of educating the public about this. But let me ask you a more difficult question, I think. Democrats have a tendency to believe that all you do is go out in front of the American people and you provide them lists of policies. And if they're powerful enough lists of policies, the public will be rational enough to say, yes, I want that. But Republicans, and I don't want to make this a partisan forum, but I've noticed, <laughs> I have noticed over the past 40 years that Republicans tend not to go out there in the public with a lot of policies. They go out with moral principles. They talk morality. What is the morality that we, or you, or I, or Hillary Clinton, or Bernie Sanders, or anybody else, as a progressive, what's the moral set of principles that's going to actually move people? We need to reward work, not wealth. So what's happening, and you're sitting in the presence of the experts, so I'll say it in my own simple, short formulation. We're rewarding, as a society, as a nation, as a, as a government, we reward wealth more and more every day, which is just concentrating wealth in fewer and fewer hands. It's not just smart, clever people in the financial industry. It's a set of government policies that continually allow them to concentrate their wealth. We, meanwhile, back at the ranch, we do not reward work. How can people work one job, two jobs, three jobs, and not still be able to make ends meet and have the $25 in the bank account? Well, because government policy hasn't set the right minimum wage. Government policy hasn't provided paid sick leave and paid family leave. Government policy doesn't make things like pre-K and after school available to children for free. Uh, these are uh, knowable things, fixable things. So the moral standard is, and I think it's a profoundly uh, and classically American value, a country formed on hard work, uh, a country of immigrants, a country of strivers. This is the American dream actually happened in many ways. I don't want to provide a gauzy, romantic uh, view of perfection, but the core notion that generations were actually able to uplift themselves and their children could do better than them, and it was based on hard work, and work actually was rewarded. That, that's true. Your, your film, your research, your books show it. So if we say, you know what, we are the party of work. We're the party that believes in work, and we're going to do a series of things to reward work, and we are not a party that accepts inequality. Inequality is an un-American value. So if you had to make it plain and narrow, and we're not in a partisan setting, but if one party wants to represent growing inequality and the, upper, the other party wants to represent a return to equality, which is an American ideal, I think that's plenty of the groundwork you discuss.
Uh, Merit, Bill de Blasio, you have been very generous with your time, and we are very appreciative of your time. We're also appreciative, uh, and I can certainly speak for myself, and I think most people in this room, for the leadership you are providing on this issue of inequality. Uh, keep it up, uh, and uh, use your voice as you have. Use your stature. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I think we represent the long and the short of the issue.